sounds of the Anteater Kingdom on 88.9 FM KUCI in Irvine. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, welcome. This is Real People OC, and I am your host, Kimberly Martin. And as always, we bring you programming of interesting individuals uh, throughout our county or that interface with our county in an important way. So today is um, is no, uh, it's just exactly like that. We want to make sure we always bring you <laughs> folks that, I don't know, pique your interest. I really enjoy meeting new people, and my guest today is one of those people that I wanted to share with you. So she is uh, Janine Yarnarelli, and she is an industry veteran with over 25 years of aircraft sales experience. She is the founder and CEO of Paravion, and she provides a global um, reach with a presence in Houston, Asia, Paris, and New York. What a fabulous topic for us to engage in today. Janine is going to be here to talk to us about that impressive endeavor to succeed in a male-dominated industry and um, what it's like to buy and sell jets all over the world. So she's going to share with us that story and some of her mentoring of women and young professionals, those efforts in um, in those areas, and the importance of giving back and being a solid corporate citizen. So I want to welcome to the show today, Janine Yamarelli. Janine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kimberly. It's a pleasure to join you today. Oh, wonderful. Well, you know, it's no small task to nail down a jet setter, but <laughs> there you are. You're here, and then we get to talk to you today and find out a little bit about what it is that you do. Well, terrific. I'd be happy to give you some insight into uh, what my career has been like and what my day-to-day uh, lifestyle is, if you will, in the world of aircraft brokering. Okay, good. Well, you know, take us back. I think we all have a perception of the jet set lifestyle, and so maybe you can demystify some of that and talk to us a little bit about uh, your history and how you got into this, and then take us through that world that you live in today. I'd be pleased pleased to do so. You know, I'd like to think that there is this really glamorous uh, path that I could paint to where I sit today, but it has a lot to do with being in the right place at the right time and then given the opportunity to show that you have the right skill set to survive and thrive in what is a very challenging industry and challenging for many reasons because most of it is beyond our control. And uh, so to take you back, just to take you way back, (laughs) my um, last year at university, I went to school in the East Coast, small university in northern New Jersey, and I thought I was going to work in the advertising industry. I had a job lined up in Manhattan, and, you know, that was my goal throughout college. And then I met someone who thought that I should gain some greater practical experience, so go take a job. You have a light semester load, and I did. Found someone with a startup business doing research in the aviation industry. And I thought, well, I could do that. You know, I did a temp position once with a charter airline, and I thought, I know all about this stuff. <laughs> and that's really where they say the rest is history. I went to work for a woman, pioneer in her own right, starting a business that, you know, in other industries, that's kind of a mature sort of business. But in the business aviation, the collection of data, the collating and assimilating of that information and then reselling it was novel. I became their first employee, found it extremely exciting and interesting. I mean, it was blowing apart all the case studies I had in my business classes where, you know, you work your way up the corporate ladder, you never get to interface with senior-level executives until you yourself are one. Well, here I am, senior at a local university, dialing executive VPs, the CFOs. They're taking my call because I soon came to find out that an airplane pretty special piece of equipment regardless of the size of the company and that there is uh, a, a buying group if you will and a 
decision-making group that handle any changes that are made to the aviation transportation requirements of the company. So this was all very heady experience and very intoxicating, if you will. And I was influenced by this woman and her husband, who at the time was president of a major manufacturing corporation. And he saw opportunity in the industry. He saw an opportunity for me. And they convinced me to stay. And that's why I say the rest is history. It, it's oh, interesting. <laughs> so your, your uh, summer job, or if you will, your internship is what turned into your career. Correct. Exactly that. Uh, and I apparently was a very good salesperson from the start because I went back to one of my professors who was teaching a class in international marketing, and I convinced them to let me do this internship as my classwork and get three credits for it. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if there's any students listening, we want to encourage you to try these techniques. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Very nice. So, so, you know, I'm fascinated by the need to collect data. Were they uh, the data to, because what a great foundation for what you ended up doing. Was it, was it to make purchase decisions? Well, uh, the reason we gathered this data is to help. It was first meant for the trade, and in fact, it really is solely meant for the trade. Uh, we would canvas existing owners of aircraft to determine whether or not they were planning to sell their airplane. We would make these lists of available aircraft, which are not publicly known, because really it was a very, very young industry where there were limited places in which you could advertise or promote your airplane, and there was no public records that really would provide you any access. There still is to this day. There is no multi-listing service. That is uh, public information. Uh, there's no real sharing, even among the trade. It, it's the network that you develop that helps you to ascertain values for aircraft. So we would put this information together and resell it to brokers who they themselves were looking for opportunities, or if they had a buyer for an aircraft but lacked the aircraft. This way they could go find it quickly and relatively inexpensively as opposed to putting someone on staff whose job was to do the same thing. Okay, so it was a coalescing of this information for the industry that had never been done before. Correct. Do you use this tool now in I your do. current business? Interesting. I do. <laughs> I've segued from first employee in a pioneering sector of the industry to now a consumer of the product. Fascinating. Um, so let's talk about the industry that you're in now and how you transitioned from what you were doing uh, collecting data to this. Well, that was sort of an easy transition for me, and I would have to say it had a lot to do with my personality and what I felt was an innate uh, quality for selling. I, I would not say that, that researchers per se transition into aircraft sales because some people are just much more comfortable being bound to their desk and anonymously speaking with people and collecting this sort of data. Uh, for me, I love the engagement with people, the ability to connect with them, the uh, opportunity to help facilitate a purchase or a sale and satisfying their needs and, you know, the whole feeling of getting a job well done that goes hand in hand, of course, with making money. And the transition, as I said, the opportunity was put before me by a number of the clientele that we had developed at this first firm. I, I knew I was on to something when I would go out on the road to meet with brokers, dealers, the manufacturers. And I'm not kidding when I say nearly everybody offered me a job post-visit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, being the ex-New York area person I am, I met that all with a bit of skepticism. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> it did. It protected me in more ways than you can imagine throughout the course of my career. And so I would always go home to think about that. And I was yearning for a bit of a change. I thought the interesting was dynamic enough and interesting enough that I perhaps should take a closer look at it. And so what became a short-term uh, position, which I thought would be one year and I'm going to go back to the advertising world, actually I said, okay, I'm going to commit another two years, made the move to Houston, Texas to join an aircraft dealer, and, you know, again, once more, that cliche, the rest is history. I stayed. Okay, so Houston being an important uh, hub for the aviation industry? Well, <clears throat> the central United States certainly is, and Texas has always played an integral role in the development of aircraft. Maybe not so much Houston. I think San Antonio, a lot of that R&D 
manufacturing, pioneering could be uh, reflected there. Of course, Wichita is another important area of the country that was instrumental in the development of aircraft. But what I noticed in, in the state of Texas, other than the can-do spirit, the whole idea of uh, you come here, we'll give you the chance, you get to prove yourself. I mean, I, I can't say enough things about the great state of Texas, and I'm sure you've heard our governor say the same for <laughs> the state of California. But it's really all very true. And there were a number of people in the aviation business, particularly in the buying and selling end of the industry, headquartered in the state of Texas that I had come to know, and it just seemed like a good choice. Now, that's the professional side of me. The personal side of me chose Houston because it literally is a one-hour drive off the coast, and I grew up spending my summers at the beach, and I couldn't imagine being so far inland that I couldn't get there quickly. Yes, I know. If you're a coastal gal, being landlocked is, is I don't know, it's just it's confining mentally in a way that you can't really explain to people that grew up in the middle. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah, I, I've experienced that as well. Um, okay, so you didn't have very many female role models, though, to make that leap from intern into industry participant. What was that like? You know, uh, that, that's an interesting question, and I can't say at the time that I was really reflecting upon it, and I can't say that I actually was seeking it out. And I think in part that has to do with the role models that I had, or I should say the mentors, which were mostly men. I mean, of, of course, I should start with my parents first and foremost. Uh, my mother at a time was a very educated woman and a professional woman while she was raising her children. And my father was um, a, a natural-born salesperson and, and, more importantly, always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to. Uh, it, not in the literal sense, but obviously he meant in terms of education and reaching for greater goals. He never gender differentiated between my brothers and I, and that helped a lot because I didn't see myself as a female struggling. I saw myself as a young person trying to make their way in the world. And I fortunately had great role models, again, mentors in um, my places of employment, most notably in the aircraft dealer that I came to join. They supported my efforts. They backed me. They had great credibility in the industry, and that was good enough for most of the other, if you will, good old boys. And I went out there and proved myself, first and foremost, to my employers. And I'm I don't know if it's lucky or smart or a combination of both, but I can't remember a misstep I took oh, well. anywhere in the course of my career. And that helps you, of course. Certainly. Now, I, just a quick shout-out to fathers, if any of them are listening. It's such a huge bonus for you. I, too, benefited from the same with my father, just a you-can-do-anything kind of attitude. And um, it's interesting what a difference that makes, isn't it? It does, and I've wondered if I stood alone in that, but it's interesting as I poll friends of mine, female friends of mine today who are successes in their own right, regardless of the career that they pursue. Some of them are senior-level executives in Fortune 100 companies. Others are running their own business, and the common denominator seems to be the same, a very strong father figure in their life who didn't gender differentiate, especially if they had brothers, and always encourage them to strive to do more. Yeah, huge, huge important factor for our development as a woman, especially in in your case where you're in a man's world. Um, so talk to me about the early days of that work. What were you doing? Well, when I first joined the aircraft dealership, I continued in that role of gathering research. Basically, I was brought on board as a staff member who uh, would help them establish their research department and look for opportunities. Uh, concurrent with that, I was being nurtured in the direction of being able to handle these complex, you know, capital-intensive type transactions. So a lot of it was absorbed through osmosis, and I did invest as much time as possible in my career. Hey, I was new to Texas. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have anything to do, more or less, my first few months. So what I did do was work. And what I didn't know, I studied so I would be smarter and prepared for the day that I would be thrust in front of a potential prospect and on my own. And now you have to go wing it. And so you felt comfortable and confident to do so. Uh, you know, and you gain more as you succeed. Uh, yes, uh, of course, initially I would work 
alongside one of the partners in the firm or one of the other employees who had more experience than I and observe, you know, listen. Listen's a more difficult skill than speaking, I would have to say, and I really learned that early in my career to listen closely and process the information that you're being received instead of reading from a script and telling people what you think they want to hear. So being adaptable is another important skill set, I would say, and I just interject that because it is what comes to mind and what helped me. And slowly but surely, I would feel much more confident that even if I was in a setting where it was um, a team from my office making a presentation and I would be listening and thinking that one of my colleagues perhaps is leaving out a point, I very quickly felt comfortable enough to jump in and make a succinct point. And at w- I, I remember it might have been a time I was on the road with uh, one of the partners and we were visiting Chevron actually up in the San Francisco Bay Area and we are a small company relative to the other brokers and dealers they worked with in the past. But we went in there with the idea that we're small, we're focused, our markets have been smaller jets than what you currently are looking to dispose of, but it's the ideal target market in order to get people to move on up. And I took over the meeting more or less from my, my boss and he let it go because he saw what I didn't see at that time. We won them over and won the account. So, <laughs> you, you know, you walk away with that kind of, uh, you know, accomplishment, and how could you not gain in confidence? Oh, certainly. Okay, so I want to know a little bit more about who buys jets. You know, you mentioned Chevron, so it makes sense that uh, large corporations. Um, is it is it not the sexy lifestyle people that are purchasing private um, aviation, or what? what is it? What is, um, what is the profile of your average client? Well, um, I would say it is... Uh, I should say that the buyers of aircraft run the gamut. The demographics, perhaps, of our clientele are more conservative. Uh, It would be a small percentage will be your Fortune 250-type corporation. The rest of our business is small and mid-cap companies, privately held, uh, entrepreneurs, And really, I would have to say the bulk of my own personal business is the entrepreneur, the individual who is running a company or purchasing the aircraft for his own personal use or for that of his family. And I use the word he as opposed to she because nine times out of ten, it's a gentleman buying the aircraft. Is it because they have a dream to fly themselves? Not really. I mean, I have certainly worked with people who are type rated in the type of aircraft that they're purchasing from us and certainly crew the aircraft, but the majority see it as a means by which to get from point A to point B. It's transportation. Now, you raise the point about the sexy lifestyle, the glamour associated with private jet travel, and yes, of course, we do work with uh, some celebrities, some very high-profile individuals that I'm, I'm sure it's more than just transportation for them because transportation can be provided in many shapes and forms in the business aviation world. It probably is a little bit of an extension of the way they view themselves and like their lifestyle to be accommodated. But that, for me personally, is a small percentage of my business. Okay, so but but mostly the individual wants the ease of travel. What are some of the advantages to private aviation that we can encourage listeners to uh, work towards in their lives? Well, you know, it goes beyond the ease of travel, which certainly is probably first and foremost. The other is peace of mind, because essentially, as the owner of the aircraft, you control all aspects of the operation. Now, not literally, because that operational control, which is an FAA term, is delegated to the flight crew that's responsible for the airplane. But in essence, you get to hire your crew. You get to allocate the resources for the maintenance of the airplane, and so you're pretty much well aware of where your airplane's been maintained and how frequently it's been maintained. Cosmetically, you control uh, how the airplane will be completed. And then, you know, let's talk about the ease, the ease of knowing that if you're stuck in traffic or you're running late or you have one more thing you have to do before you can leave, all you need to do is make a phone call or in some cases you don't even need to make a phone call. They're not leaving without you. And, you know, just to be able to dispatch from wherever you are on your schedule is worth its weight in gold. The stress that it takes off you. 
privacy is another big concern, particularly among corporations, because they're doing business as they fly, and they can't necessarily discuss sensitive issues in a commercial airliner. I mean, you never know who's sitting around you. Uh, I had that instance flying home from New York this week. Two friends of mine happened to be on board the same flight. Little did we know. But imagine if it was a competitor of mine sitting behind me, and I didn't know that, and we were discussing strategic planning or the customer that we have for this particular airplane. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised they'd be sitting behind me taking notes. Interesting. So, it, but does the, the cost-benefit analysis work out in their favor to use private aviation, private aircraft for those reasons in, in most corporate settings? Well, I would like to say in most. I mean, obviously, statistics are what they are. You can, to some degree, manipulate the numbers. But I think if you have an aircraft of a certain size and value, and you routinely fill the seats, hands down, your cost of operation will beat what your travel fees would be, particularly if it comes down to last-minute travel on a commercial airliner. Now, the capital investment is something different, but how do you measure the ROI on a capital investment if the tool is being used to chase a deal that's worth hundreds of millions, in today's dollars, billions? and you secure the deal because you were able to respond in a timely fashion. There is a company here in Houston, they're transplants from New Orleans. Uh, they specialize in marine salvage and they didn't own an aircraft. And I visited with them and talked about the benefits of such and I said, in your business, who wins the deal? Is it solely on the basis of uh, reputation? Is it uh, that when you go after new business development, is it cost driven? And the answer was, well, of course, reputation is a lot because apparently it's a very small industry, but who gets there first? Mm, if we can get there first, we're going to get the deal every time. They bought an airplane not long after that, and they will always be in an airplane from here forward. So for them, it was a, a real business decision that it enhanced their, exactly. their bottom line. So that's how I say, how do you measure the return on the, on the capital investment if you're spending, you know, whether it's $2 million, $10 million, or $50 million. The utilization of the aircraft really dictates the value of the airplane. Okay, so are you yourself a pilot? Do you enjoy flying? I love flying, and I love sitting back on that right-hand seat in the cabin and watching everyone else fly the airplane for me. Uh, I pursued a private pilot's license. I took it as far as, you know, getting to my solo, and I really decided, you know, I'm, our business is better served by me being accessible to both crew and the passengers, especially if we're on a demo, as opposed to being or serving as one of the crew members on a demo flight. Uh, so, no, I, I didn't pursue that, and I am not, but I've spent enough time up front and have pretty good working knowledge of how to fly the airplane. <laughs> very, very fun. If you're just uh, tuning in with us, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin, and I have with us as our guest today, Janine Yonarelli. She's the president of Par Avion Limited, and they are aviation consultants of the world. Um, I want to dig a little bit into what types of aircrafts are out there now, what are the, um, the up-and-coming, and what are the old tried-and-true? Mm, well... Let me start by saying what we specialize in. And we focus primarily on a French-built aircraft produced by a company called Dassault, and the product line is known as the Falcon Jet. And there are many derivatives of the Falcon, uh, but that's where our primary area of expertise is. We also uh, deal in Gulfstreams, Citations, some of the Bombardier product line, which includes Learjets and uh, what is known as the Global Express or Challengers. Citations. I would say that kind of our core business and what we do outside of that is at the request of our existing clientele. As far as the hot model today, the hottest airplane out there today is the Gulfstream G650. And I say that because it enjoys a long lead time until the next delivery. So if you went today to order one, I would not be surprised that Gulfstream would inform you you could have your airplane in 2018. Hmm. Not only that, while they have their price for the aircraft, these aircraft in the resale marketplace, of which there are just a couple, and there have been maybe one or two traded, are trading at huge premiums, as much as 7 to 
above the purchase price. So it can be an investment. <laughs> it, 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 well, I would <laughs> never look at the aircraft as an investment other than as an investment in your business. Uh, speculation in the aircraft can go either way rather quickly. Is it? Um, so, okay, so this aircraft, you couldn't have it in le- if you wanted it for another several years. Um, is that, uh, is, is that an influencing factor on a purchasing decision for somebody? I would certainly say it is for people who have an urgent and immediate need, unless they're absolutely set on that particular make and model. Uh, if you're a first-time buyer, you may sit back and say, you know, I'm ready to buy something right now, and okay, I can't have that airplane. What else will do the mission for me? And there are plenty of aircraft that will come very close to accomplishing that mission. And I think the primary reason people buy the G650 is the ultra-long-range capability. And, and by that, you mean it flies a greater distance. Exactly. It'll be a lot, a lot longer than most of the other airplanes out there. But having said that, most people, and this is another reason why I'm a an aficionado of the Falcon because it is a multi-purpose tool. It will go long distances. It will take off from short fields. It'll do so at high elevation. So depending on what your lifestyle is, which I imagine some of your listeners enjoy, you know, a ski country, whether it's Telluride, Aspen, another high elevation, challenging runway requirements, and yet need to go the distance. Well, you know, the Falcon will do it day in, day out, more or less whatever time of the day, whereas other aircraft are going to be restricted based on temperature and weight, which is something that some people don't take into consideration when they're looking at the type of airplane that they want to buy, and they really need to do to factor that in to their buying decision. You know, other hot models in today's market, well, we saw great demand in the small but new jet marketplace. And I will lump into that category anything from what is known as a Cessna, CJ2, CJ3, CJ4, a Lear 31A. They became very popular models last year, and I think it was in part driven by price point. You're basically looking at an aircraft that was selling anywhere from $1.5 million upwards of $5 million. And that seemed to be the sweet spot in the market last year. Too early this quarter to really determine if that's going to continue. I see a little bit of interest in that. And, of course, we run, I would like to say, in cycles. And so there's always interest in the large jet, large cabin airplanes. And the buyers today prefer newer as opposed to older, and newer being 15 years or newer. Okay, now that's an interesting fact. So you just told us that um, the sweet spot last year was the 1.5 to 5 million. Can we compare that to what the Gulfstream, the G650, is going to cost? Yes, if you signed for a new airplane today, I believe it's 65.5 million. A huge difference. And and very big difference between the airplanes themselves. I mean, we're talking in terms of cabin range, capabilities of the aircraft. But, you know, comparable, I'll give you something perhaps that's a closer comp. If someone wanted a large cabin aircraft, let's choose the Falcon 900EX, and an airplane that was produced somewhere between 1997 and 2002, uh, aircraft that'll give you 4,500 nautical miles range, would sell somewhere today between 12 and a half, 13 million and upwards of 15 million. Okay, now, because I'm a complete novice, when you say 45 mile range? 4,500 uh, 4, 4, nautical miles. nautical, okay. All right. So essentially, uh, you're getting across the country easily. And that's about it? Well, You've further actually. <laughs> okay. So you can take that from New York to London? Yes, oh, easily. Okay. All right. Um, so when somebody evaluates this, what are some of the, the shorter distances that some of these aircraft, let's say somebody accidentally got into one where they can just get from, you know, here to where? What are some of the distances that we're talking about, the range? Oh, I would say at a minimum 1,000 nautical miles. That's more or less what you're looking at in a product such as what is known as the Phenom 100, built by Embraer, which is a relatively modern aircraft. They only started producing and delivering it, I want to say, 2007. Uh, Lear 31s, you're looking at 1,400-1,500 nautical miles, more or less the same with the CJ2. Okay. And so the, somebody that would purchase that is just looking to travel here in the United States? Yes. Mexico. It's a domestic airplane. It's ideally suited for domestic travel. 
Okay. Um, say this about cabin size. What is what is the typical um, needs that you're serving when you're looking at cabin size? Well, you know, interestingly enough, people are most interested in how many passenger seats. If you're a buyer for a small jet, you accept the fact that it is not a stand-up cabin. If you're a buyer for a large jet, while you would like headroom, you can't have everything. Cabin width is also a consideration, but what they're really looking for is that feeling of spaciousness and a fully enclosed lavatory and something that you can comfortably get in and out of as opposed to some of the smaller jets. Okay. It's kind of like, you know, buying a motorhome. <laughs> <You know? laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you just look at everything as just a really condensed version of itself, right? Exactly. A really condensed version of itself. Okay, good. Well, I'm fascinated by all of the technical aspects, and I know that we could probably talk endlessly about that because you're so skilled in that area. But um, the the price range is so huge. You know, what say you of the, um, I don't know if it was a trend or just a new emerging way of selling aircraft time was to do it in the version of a timeshare. Mm-hmm. A fractional share program. Fractional, sure. What is, what is that doing to your industry? Well, I would say helping it quite frankly. I mean, initially there was a great concern among people in the industry that the fractional shares were going to put flight departments out of business, they were going to push whole aircraft dealers out of business, and I don't think much of that came to pass. I mean, certainly there are instances of such where uh, corporations decided that purchasing of a share was beneficial to both their balance sheet as well as their transportation requirements as opposed to maintaining a full department and an aircraft. But I've also seen people who acquired fractional shares, once the share period was up, gravitate back towards whole ownership. Fractional shares have also created an entree for first-time buyers, if you will, to try it out and decide whether or not they liked it and then determine whether whole ownership made more sense to them. And I have picked up my fair share of first-time whole aircraft buyers who came out of the fractional share programs. Interesting. Yeah, I could see where it would do that. It would introduce for people that wanted to stick their toe in, so to speak. Exactly. Um, What is the average lifespan of a private aircraft? Well, you would think that there is no life limit given that the age of some of the airplanes still flying. And and truthfully, the manufacturers themselves have established aging aircraft inspections, and there are set periods at which point they have to basically pull the airplane apart and look at fatigue and stress, wear and tear. But retirement of the aircraft is probably more predicated on the economics than it is the age. And I phrase it that way because today... The market value of certain airplane, certain airplanes is far lower than what it's going to cost to do the next inspection. Oh, so interesting. It really becomes a personal decision on the part of the owner to take their otherwise perfect but aging aircraft and complete work that's mandated that may far exceed the value of their airplane. Now, some people are okay with that because they're not going to change equipment. Others look at that as the time at which they will retire the airplane. I have had buyers in the last few years come in and buy an aircraft model where we have defined them as the last owner of this airplane because the market is going away. And they realize that. It's the reason why they pay a deeply discounted price with the idea that the next time a major airframe event or engine event comes due, they are simply just going to park the airplane and be done with it. Okay, interesting. You know, this leads the question to um, airports. You know, private aviation, they all land, don't they land at different airports or different runways? How does that work? Well, they have access to more airports than the commercial airliners do. And that's by virtue of their size, weight, and capability, performance capability. Uh, Private aircraft or business aircraft, all airports are open to them as long as they meet the runway requirements. So a jet leaving California could land at JFK or LaGuardia or Newark. They don't generally do so if the only reason for the trip is 
business in the New York area. Then you would opt for one of the satellite airports, which may be solely dedicated to what we call general aviation or business aviation, and that includes Teterboro in New Jersey, Westchester County Airport in White Plains, New York, Morristown Airport, or any of the airports out on the Long Island area. But if you are an international traveler, and I have some clients who do exactly this, they use their aircraft to go to Newark or JFK to get dropped off so they could catch an international flight. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so it's just in to put them in a better position uh, in terms time. of arrival times. Exactly. Remember, it's a time machine. That's what an aircraft is. It's a time machine. In <laughs> a world it. where you can't recapture time, this gives you an opportunity. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to ask you to hold just one second. No Sorry worry. To interrupt. What I didn't do was close my office door, and my security detail was going to come in here and bark up a storm. Ah, no worries. <laughs> Good to have it on hand. Oh, um, on the private airports, are the fees less than the commercial airlines? I know we all sort of, you know, grit our teeth with the fees that airports are charging us on our commercial airline tickets. Um, is there some advantage to landing at a private airport, or is it more expensive? Well, um, that, again, is a very subjective sort of, situation and you know I'm somewhat versed in it I'm perhaps not the expert but I'll give you an example some of the fixed base operations that private jet aircraft make use of charge a handling fee uh, if you land and don't purchase gas they may charge you a ramp fee which could then start to get expensive I mean whatever airport you make use of there are landing fees associated with it that you have to pay uh, as far as is it any cheaper well at the end of the day you buying an individual ticket versus flying your whole aircraft is less money than flying the whole aircraft. But if, again, you put eight people on board or seven people on board the aircraft, then it becomes an economic uh, alternative that makes sense, particularly to a company. Um, most, you know, fuel is fuel. That That is the price that you have to pay. Uh, outside that, I, I'm drawing a blank as far as any sort of other additional fees that may be assessed a business aircraft that lands at a particular airport. Do individuals that are purchasing your clients, do they pay? Do they purchase an aircraft based on mileage much the same way we do cars? Yes, except we view it in terms of hours and cycles. So I would say there's definitely a psychological perception that an aircraft that has exceeded 10,000 hours, and again, it, it, it's purely psychological perspective and really doesn't have as tremendous a bearing on the usefulness or the uh, useful life of the aircraft. Uh, but yes, uh, especially in the marketplace we've been in, in the last five years where it's still a buyer's market and they can be picky and choosy and a lower time aircraft is going to get more attention than one with higher time. Interesting. Um, you know, I remember a time that I was the chairman of a Young Entrepreneurs Association in Wichita, Kansas. This is a segue into um, sort of the the um, the fathers of private aviation in our country. And uh, the funding source for our association was a Fran Jabaro, who was also the venture capitalist uh, behind uh, Bill Lear, Learjet. Mm -hmm. And um, it, you mentioned that... Uh, it was so fascinating landing into Wichita Airport and seeing all of those major hubs for the um, for those those private aircrafts. I actually got to meet Mrs. Cessna while shopping in a gift shop. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so it really is, you know, an aviation town too. It's interesting. It what absolutely is interesting world that you live in. I want to touch on before we leave your work life and talk about the cross border transactions that you have become known for in your business. Well, uh, I would say that we're fairly well known for making a market in transactions between the European continent and the United States. Uh, I tongue-in-cheek say I've become the cultural bridge for aircraft buyers and sellers. So that's probably what I am uh, best known for, though our transaction history uh, covers pretty much the globe. Uh, we've done considerable amount of business in Africa, in southern Africa, I should say. 
South America, Central America a little bit, Asia. I used to have a fairly strong base in Manila, had a trading partner there, and we did quite some transactions in Asia before Asia became the new frontier, or I should say the, um, the hot market that it has been for the last few years. So do you have to fly to these places and inspect the aircraft you wish to purchase yourself? Uh, yes, <laughs> in a short answer. Uh, most of the time I am on the scene, if you will, uh, particularly if I'm selling the aircraft. I, I make it a point of going to see the airplane and reviewing the records myself because, again, as a good salesperson, I want to know what I'm talking about and not take it simply at face value as to what the condition of the airplane is. Uh, I think that's very important, particularly when the aircraft is in a remote location, because if you're trying to convince a domestic buyer to travel that sort of distance to buy an aircraft, you had better darn well know what you're presenting to them. Sure. You know, it, it, and I've been there where I've flown halfway around the world only to discover that the airplane was nothing as represented. Interesting. How many stops would you have to take to bring an aircraft from Asia back to the uh, stateside? It depends on the size of the airplane. If it's a Gulfstream G650, you're not. You're just going to come straight back to the stateside. But if you're in something like a Cessna CJ or a Lear 31A, you're going to make multiple stops en route because when you have 1,500 nautical miles, and I think you're trying to transition something like 10,000, you can do the math. Right, right. Okay, interesting. Well, one of the things that you wanted to bring to us today was to take some of that real-life experience that you have garnered from your career and impart that maybe through mentoring to uh, women and young professionals. Let's talk a little bit about um, what you see your, your business has brought to you and how you could share some of those overriding, overarching themes in your business um, to life, really. Well, I'm often asked by some young people as to what can they do to further enhance their chances of securing the job that they want uh, or endearing themselves, if you will, to their employers. Uh, what can they do different? And my answer is very simple, do more. You know, everybody has a job description and everybody has expectations, uh, or I should say the employer has certain expectations. Why not exceed them? That's how you stand out in a workforce today. It, it goes beyond having an education, which I think that if you enter the business world, it goes without saying. You've got to have at least an undergraduate degree, and of course the trend now is to having a master's in your area of uh, specialty. But you're on the job day to day. Don't just do what's on your desk that day. Do a little bit more. Become more versed in the corporate culture. Become more proactive in managing your career and the paybacks will be great someone will recognize you in the process do you see young people entering your industry now i do um, it's fairly limited because it's not a traditional career path i would say for most college graduates i, I think it's still an industry where the people are not even aware exists and so you have to know somebody or by chance, such as what happened with myself. Meet someone who then steers you into the industry and help guide you as, and helps you see that there is uh, great opportunity in career development. Do you still see that it's a male-dominated field that you're in, or are more and more women entering the field that you're in? Well, there's certainly more and more women, and there's certainly more and more women who are distinguishing themselves as tough competitors and great marketers and uh, rising to the top in just about every aspect of business aviation. That being said, it is still a male-dominated industry. But, you know, if I had to give one more piece of advice to the ladies out there and young women is try not to play the gender card. I think you're better served by simply looking at yourself as qualified and competent and conveying that regardless of who's up for the job. I think that's really good advice, absolutely. And uh, for the young professional that wants to get that experience, that first shot, um, what do you say to them? I hear so many are in that conundrum of I don't have experience and I can't get the job until I have it, so it's, it's like a trap. It is a trap, and I'm not quite sure I know the definitive answer to that. Um, you know, I've had people, uh, let me put it this way, I look at resumes all the time. And one thing that 
makes me throw someone's resume in file 13 is when nothing on their resume matches the uh, the ad that's been placed for the job. It's like, you know, okay, even if you don't quite have that skill set, read into the requested qualifications and see if there's something that you've done in your life and tailor your resume to reflect that. The other is uh, when applicants simply email me a resume with no cover letter, no form of introduction, and then no follow-up. That tells me a lot about what they're going to do on the job, especially because the type of jobs that I have to offer are very interactive. So I would say that you really need to focus on the job description and ask yourself, even if it's not currently on your resume, what life experience do you have that you could parlay that into something that would work in that particular position? And then be persistent. Employers love persistence. Someone who's persistent is going to get a second look. So some of those basics that are the themes that you'd hear in any industry and um, in any aspect of life really would apply to um, gathering experience in a field that you have nothing in. Absolutely. I hear a lot of defeatism among young people as opposed to I can do and I will try and I realize I'm going to get told no more than I'm going to be told yes. Oh, interesting. You know, I wonder what that's about. Do you think that's um, maybe a um, an, af- an effect of the economy that maybe they grew up in? There's just their parent. They probably rubbed off from their parents you know, a little bit of the doldrums. No, a, a little bit. I mean, I see the problem here with young women in that they're they're coddled so much right up through four years of university, and then suddenly here's the real world, and. Perhaps they were never told no. Perhaps their boundaries were not the same as what the real world really establishes or an employer. And, you know, they just have this sense of entitlement when they come to work. And that's not the environment I grew up in. And, frankly, most of the industries that I observe or see, that's not the way the office operates. Right. So it's almost a culture shock, I see, for young women to realize that, oh, Someone's not going to like what I'm doing. I'm not going to get an award even though I just showed up, just for showing up that day. (laughs) You know, and and that's another good point. You know, we've become a society, and here I'm going to get very philosophical of... Go right ahead. (laughs) Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets a ribbon, and it starts from a very young age with boys and girls. Nobody gets to lose, but that's what the real world is. There is a loser and a winner. It doesn't make you bad, and it doesn't make you less, but you have to learn how to handle defeat. And I don't think we're teaching young people how to do that. Sure. And, and, you know, every um, opportunity of failure is really something that you can transition through to a learning lesson that you don't want to miss if you don't accept the fact that it was a failure. Exactly. I think we used to call them learning experiences. I used to call them successful failures. (laughs) (laughs) If it ran the gamut of total and complete failure, man, I knew about 10 things I wasn't going to do twice. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, one of the things that you bring to your work and to your life is that importance of giving back and being a solid corporate citizen. How do you balance that between life and work and the travel that you do? Well, uh, it's almost become second nature to me because I am a big proponent of giving back to the local community. I think it's an obligation of everyone, regardless of where you are uh, in your career development, if you will, or your socioeconomic status, because it's as simple as picking up the trash on the street. You know, if you do an act of kindness, one will be returned to you. Everyone benefits from positive actions. And so I make it a point here at Par Avion, and I encourage people who work for me, that they need to give back to their local community, either in the form of a contribution of money or their time. Time, talent, or treasure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Anyone in particular that you like to spend your time? Well, I focus primarily on those charities that benefit the welfare of children and animals. They are the closest and the dearest to my heart, and we are consistent with our efforts related to such charities. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder if I'm spreading myself a little too thin as of late because I get asked to be involved with certain fundraising efforts. And, you know, I have to manage my calendar very carefully. I'm, I'm chairing an event this upcoming weekend, which benefits a scholarship foundation for a local culinary institute. And that's been the year in the making. And, you know, for example, I couldn't put really anything else on the agenda until that was complete. 
we are consistent sponsors of a charity horse show, and, and one of the reasons for the affiliation is because I've been an equestrian my entire life, but this particular charity benefits Texas Children's Hospital, which I am just a big proponent of here in Houston. So that, that's our focal point. It's, it's, it's been wonderful spending so much time with you. I absolutely love delving into the world of private aviation. It's, it's fascinating, and I love the fact that you shared with us the nuts and the bolts of it and how it's really more of a business tool than anything. We we get so, I don't know, um, blindsided, not really blindsided, but just, I don't know, scripted with the media and the perceptions that we have of the way the real world works. And it really doesn't sound like uh, the real world is working the way they want us to see it. And I love the fact that uh, really, it's just all about business and transacting business and making making uh, making things happen in that regard, and not just people being lazy and living a really lazy lifestyle. Well, you're exactly correct. I mean, we work hard at what we do. Everyone I know in the business aviation industry works extremely hard, and the users of aircraft, that's exactly what they're doing as well, working hard. Yeah, because it seems like even in, the pol- in politics when we are in an, a, an election year, they seem to come down really hard on individuals that use private aviation. And, I mean, it seems to me that there could be a lot of uh, resources saved if we were if we were looking at it as a, as a business tool. So it's it's possible that it can it can swing both ways in terms of the argument to use private aviation. Exactly that. I think our industry was greatly damaged by some of the negative comments that were tossed their way. Uh, you know, and I think to the credit of the business aviation users is just put their nose to the grindstone and keep doing the job that they need to do and do it well because as their businesses grow they get to employ more people exactly and and everybody benefits from that so um well any final thoughts that you want to share with us um here at real people oc well uh, i think we've covered the gamut in terms of the aviation industry and what makes the props turn, so to speak. I love it. <laughs> no, I would just like to share that it is a, a dynamic, interesting, pioneering industry. You know, we, we shake hands with the commercial airline side of it. We shake hands with the aerospace side of it. And it's a very, very interesting um, career pursuit for anyone out there who's thinking, wow, that could be of interest to me. And there's a big aviation community on the West Coast, particularly in Orange County. Huge, yes. Absolutely. I know we drive by it every time we uh, go to John Wayne Airport. There's a big section of that airport that's just right along the road that uh, that shows all the action that's really going on in private aviation. So did my first aircraft deal at a John Wayne Airport. Ah, very nice. <laughs> well, uh, Jane Morelli, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you here. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, they can go to paravionltd.com, and that's P-A-R-A-V-I-O-N-L-T-D.com. Um, would you like me to put the number up there if anybody wants to get a hold of you as oh, well? Oh, yes, that would be lovely. I have your office number as 713 one zero zero seven five. Do you have any other contact information you need to share? That's the best number to reach us at. Janine Ironarelli, aviation consultant to the world, Par Avion. It has been a delightful hour with you today. Kimberly, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. All right, thank you, Janine.